0: wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that reveals a little bit more about history every day. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're talking about the plight of the boat people, including the global resettlement program that eventually got them off the water and back on dry land. The day was September 20th, 1977. The first group of the so-called Boat People were admitted to the United States as refugees from communist Vietnam. They were nicknamed Boat People, because they had fled their homeland aboard old freighters and small run-down fishing boats, which they then lived aboard for weeks or sometimes even months. Their plan had been to float to a nearby country in Southeast Asia, and then hopefully secure sponsorship to a democratic nation like the U.S., Canada, Australia, or France. Most of the boat people who found refuge in the U.S. arrived at Travis Air Force Base, roughly 50 miles northeast of San Francisco. President Carter had approved a plan to admit 15,000 new refugees in 1977, and on September 20th, the first 113 of them walked off a Pan-American Airways flight, ready to begin their new lives. This relocation process continued a few hundred people at a time, in countries all over the world, for the next 15 years. The first mass exodus from Vietnam began in 1954, when the Geneva Conference temporarily divided Vietnam into two parts, a communist-controlled area in the north and a non-communist region in the south. This placed northern Vietnam in the hands of a violent communist regime known as the Viet Minh. Under their rule, citizens were pitted against one another, with Catholics, intellectuals, and landowners all branded as enemies of the state. The oppressive environment led hundreds of thousands of northern Vietnamese villagers to risk their lives by fleeing to southern Vietnam by boat. Life in the south was also difficult, but since the region was still under the control of the Republic of Vietnam, it was better than living in the socialist state to the north. For the next 20 years, the Republic of South Vietnam fought against the north's attempts to reunify the country under communist rule. The United States joined the effort in 1965, sending thousands of troops to help fight communist Viet Cong guerrillas and other North Vietnamese forces. But after eight years of bloodshed, the war was still raging, with no clear path to victory for South Vietnam or its allies. The U.S. withdrew the last of its troops in 1973, and two years later, communist troops overwhelmed South Vietnam and took control of its capital. The fall of Saigon and the collapse of the South Vietnamese government sparked the second mass exodus from Vietnam. Once again, hundreds of thousands of people fled to the sea in overcrowded boats, hoping to find refuge from persecution. However, this second generation of boat people had much longer and more perilous journeys ahead of them. This time, they set out for other nearby countries like Malaysia, Thailand, the Philippines, and Hong Kong. Most families didn't have their own escape boats ready to go and had no choice but to pay exorbitant prices to be smuggled out aboard someone else's vessel. For instance, one of the refugees who reached the U.S. on September 20, 1977, was a 37-year-old South Vietnamese man named Q. do He sold everything he owned to pay for the passage of himself, his wife, two sisters, and a brother. The price for the five of them was 30 ounces of pure gold that small fortune bought them a space alongside 47 others in a cramped 30-foot boat that set out in darkness on june 11th of that year but escaping south vietnam was just the first part of their struggle the next was finding a place that was willing to take them in like many others in their position Do'o and his family spent several months afloat at sea traveling from one Southeast Asian nation to the next, only to be rejected or even threatened with death if they attempted to come ashore. Those countries were known as nations of first asylum, but as tens of thousands of refugees continued to arrive each month, they started to feel overwhelmed. Some countries began turning away boats, but others were far more hostile. To make matters worse, most escape boats weren't equipped for such open-ended journeys. Water and food shortages were in ever-present danger, as was the threat of being captured and taken back to Vietnam for punishment and re-education. It's estimated that between nearly 400,000 Vietnamese refugees died at sea over the course of the evacuation. Many died from dehydration, starvation, illness, or drowning, while others were murdered by pirates who saw the defenseless boats as easy prey. Those who did survive and reach the shore of a foreign nation were often placed in internment camps, where they faced an uncertain future, unaware of when or if they would be admitted to a sponsoring country. To gain entry to the United States, all Southeast Asian refugees needed an American sponsor. In many cases, refugees already had relatives in the country who could serve that function, some of whom had immigrated there themselves a few years earlier. Q Doo and his family were lucky enough to have such a connection. His wife's sister, who lived in Chicago with her husband. American sponsors provided food, clothing, housing, and other basic needs for a refugee until he or she was able to stand on their own feet again. First priority was given to those joining family members in the U.S., but refugees who didn't have U.S. relatives still had a chance. They just had to wait until a private individual, church, or service organization volunteered to sponsor them. And in many cases, that wait was quite a long one. Kyu Doo and his family were eventually allowed to dock at a port in Thailand. They continued to live there on their small, crowded boat until they were able to board a plane from Bangkok to San Francisco in September of 1977. Once government officers had confirmed their papers were in order, the family and the rest of the first wave of refugees were bused to a hotel near the San Francisco airport. The following day, the boat people went their separate ways, with the Do'o family flying to their new home in Chicago. In two years' time, sponsored refugees would be eligible to apply for permanent resident alien status, which of course most did. Their adjustment to life in a foreign country was far from easy. They were immersed in a completely different culture, and many couldn't read or speak the English language upon arrival. They were often relocated to impoverished neighborhoods as well, and made to attend below-average public schools. Despite these disadvantages, many Vietnamese refugees excelled, both academically and professionally. Studies later showed that the Vietnamese refugees and their children scored in the mid to upper ranges on standardized tests and after a period of adjustment, most adult refugees found full-time work. In fact, the unemployment rate among Southeast Asian refugees was roughly the same as native workers. Assimilating to a new culture is difficult even in the best of circumstances, and the same is true of living on a small boat out in the open ocean. But the people of Vietnam endured those hardships because the chance to live free was worth it, A doctor who declined to give his name was among the refugees who arrived in San Francisco in September of 77. Before leaving South Vietnam, he had spent nearly 20 months in a re-education and reformation camp where he'd been forced to work in the fields and to study communist philosophy. He was only released because his wife had managed to bribe officials in order to secure his freedom. Four months later, they left with their two daughters on a fishing boat packed with 49 other people. In spite of all the unknowns, the doctor knew that leaving was the only real choice they had. They would have killed me, he said. It was dangerous leaving by boat, but it was better to die that way than to stay. After another four months of drifting from nation to nation and living in hope in a crowded refugee camp, the doctor and his family finally made it to the United States. They finally found a place to breathe free. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.